Do I belong here? Do I belong here? That's a question I think everyone asks. And it's a question that comes up in the first 11 verses of Philippians. So let's read those verses now and see what God is saying to us. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. This is what he's saying to us. And it causes us to ask the question as we look at partnership in the gospel, do I belong here? Do I belong here? That question of do I belong here, perhaps you asked that question when you came to church this morning. It's the question that many newcomers might ask. I'll put it to you, it's a common question for newcomers. It's also a question that even regulars could ask. And a little secret, it's a question that even pastors ask. Do I belong here? The need to belong is so deeply wired into humans. The need to belong, the need to to, to know that, that, that these people are my people, they're my friends or they're my church family, is so deeply wired in us. And it's a question of community. As we start in this series in Philippians, we come to a letter that really speaks into community in so many ways. It's a letter on repeat with Words like joy, rejoice, what it means to have our joy in Jesus, but also it's, it's got sentences and clauses and paragraphs full of plural words. So this is not a letter written to the individual Christian. In fact, the individual Christian outside of the church is an anomaly in the Bible. And this is a letter written to a church community, a Christian community, It's a letter about community. This is a book about what it means to belong to a community. Um, If you're interested and you've seen our website, on the front page of our website, we have our mission, vision, values statement. Churches, organisations spend ages trying to come up with these things. And there'll be pages often with them. 
And we've worked out, not because we're smart or clever, but we've worked out two things really. One, we don't come up with the mission, vision, values statement of our church. Jesus does. It's his church. He's the senior pastor. Secondly, we worked out, uh, if you want pages of it, well, we've already got 66 books of it. So let's just summarize it so we can kind of remember it. And ours is simply, Jesus gives us the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is, of course, we're to love God and love our neighbor. And the great commission is to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We summarize that on the front page of the website in three words. What we're about. Simple and easy to remember. We've even made it so it's alliteration. So it's, it all starts with the same letter. It's simply this. What we're about is Christ, community, and compassion. To love God is, is about Christ. That's how we get to love God. And when we fail at that, he comes to forgive us so we can love God knowing his love for us. So first and foremost, we're about Christ. Secondly, we're about community. Community is to love our neighbor, to love our church, to love one another is community. And thirdly is compassion, is to look at the crowds as Jesus does, to look and love the lost, to look at people who are sick, to look at people who are sorrowing with compassion. Not just a mission, not just a project, but to look at them with compassion that says, I would be generous to you with whatever I have to love you. And friends, this book of Philippians is all about that central piece, which is community. To have compassion for the community. To realize that as Christians, we're not individuals doing our own thing, but we're actually a community of people who love Christ, who know his love for us. And as Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he writes about this kind of community. A community that he says right from the get-go, even from that introduction, it's easy to skip those introductions in letters, isn't it? It's easy to look at the introduction and just think, oh yeah, we know a letter, how a letter begins. It's just Paul and Timothy and it, they're right into the Philippians, right? But let's, let's zero in on this and focus on this because right from the get-go, Paul is saying to understand community is to understand that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, And so it's not for nothing, he writes verse 1 like this. Paul and Timothy, notice this, Paul and Timothy, not apostle, which he could use that word, not great leader, not senior pastor, not global pastor, not movement leader, not leader of the denomination, not moderator, not any of those things. Do you notice what Paul calls himself in verse 1? What's the title that Paul gives himself in verse 1? I think it's astounding. The word he uses, doulos in Greek, could mean bondservant or slave. We have in our translations, the ESV translator, it's servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And then he says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul could use... The title Apostle, if he wanted to, he has done in other letters, but this letter, of all the letters, this letter, with what he's about to write, with the four chapters ahead of us, he says, I'm a servant. Why do you think? Why does he pick up that title? 
Because we live in a world where we don't drift towards the title of servant. We're not attracted to it. We don't see servant as a career choice. When we think about our career or job promotion or movement to the next thing, we're always thinking, how can I go higher? How can I have bigger? How can I have my ambitions met that are greater? We don't think, how can I go lower? How can I have less for the sake of others? How can I actually be a servant? It's not natural to us. It's weird to us. We don't like to be forgotten. We don't like to go low. And Paul from the get-go says, yeah, we're servants. We're servant leaders. This is the upside-down power of the gospel. Produced by the power of God who comes into the world as, you'll never guess, a servant. You see, we're actually bigger than something that's just ourselves. In fact, actually, we're part of someone bigger. Here is the glorious juxtaposition of the gospel. is when you look to God, and you'll see this in Philippians, right? We're going to go through this letter. You come to chapter 2, where scholars call it the hymn of Christ. Where in 2 verse 7 we read that there is God himself, God in Christ, who is maker of the universe. He is extraordinarily glorious. And yet, Philippians 2 verse 7, he and scholars still ponder this statement. There are books written about this. A friend of mine wrote a book recently. We know our featured resources soon. Philippians 2 verse 7. This ought to bend your brain. Here is God who is glorious and yet empties himself, humbles himself, willingly is humiliated. The God of the Bible, the God we know, the God who has made himself known, God in Christ, is more glorious than we can imagine and yet more humble than we want to be ourselves. And he doesn't drift towards humility. He humbles himself. He empties himself. And so when Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants, he is giving shape to the rest of this letter. The beginning of community is to realize that we are one another's servant. But what we often do is want to take the high road, the proud road. Now, I think it's poignant that when Paul writes this, do you know where he writes from? He writes from prison, most likely in Rome. He writes from prison and he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And he writes to Philippi, well, the church at Philippi. Now, Philippi is a Roman colony. What does that mean? It means they have the rights of Roman citizens, most likely a city full of veteran, retired soldiers who have earned their right. They are Romans. They have street cred. And we saw this when Chris read from Acts 16, didn't we? 
They're proud. They're so proud of being Romans. They're proud of being a Roman colony of Philippi. So we see this in Acts 16, in, in verse 21. Um, we, we see in Acts 16, verse 21, that they say, this Paul and Silas are stirring things up and they're, they're causing people not to do things that us Romans accept as practice. And when the police come, the magistrates come, this is a question for them about Roman citizenship because they're proud to be Romans. And then Paul writes from a Roman prison and he says to the church at Philippi, in a city that is proud of its Roman heritage, he says, I am, with that glorious title, that gloriously low title, a servant of Christ Jesus. Are you? Do you see yourself as a servant of Christ Jesus? See, this is a letter where we see the shape of Christianity. We live in a time and place where even amongst evangelical churches, there is such a draw, a temptation for the big platform, the big conference, the big things. There's been invitations to church conferences where it's all about the the growth, and growth is good, but not all growth is good. And there's such an attraction and such a draw for churches to see church become about platform and personality. But that is not the shape of Christianity. Christianity is not the shape of platform and personality. It's cruciform, not platform, which is opposite. Cruciform is the word, the shape of the cross. Christianity is the shape of the cross. Martin Luther, the reformer, got this, and, and his works need to be revisited and reread. He writes about, in his day, the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. The theology of glory says, if you become a Christian and if you join the church, your church will become impressive. You will be impressive. Society ought to like you. That's the theology of glory. You will have platform and presence and your personality of your leader will will have such a draw. It's the theology of glory. Martin Luther says, no, that is not the shape of Christianity. It is the shape of the cross. It is the theology of the cross. And Paul, of all people, experiences that in prison. The reason that we had this letter is because originally the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus with a gift for Paul in prison, and he sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter. But it's more than a thank you letter. This is a letter about community. It's a letter about partnership in the gospel from beginning to end. Look at verse 3. Paul writes... I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Friends, when you remember people from this church, how does your heart beat? Is it with thankfulness? At this point, I want to say it's okay to be thinking, oh, maybe it hasn't been that thankful lately. That's a good question to ask. It's not a question that should be discarded. Why not? And notice this in the Bible. We're not scolded into being thankful. We're not just told, be thankful. Come on. 
Get it together. But we are encouraged to see that thankfulness, well, it's not contrived, it's derived. It ought to spring from something. Thankfulness is that spring that bubbles up from that well of love when you remember what you have been given. And this is verse 5. What have you and I been given? And Paul writes, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here we see in verse 5 that wonderful word that summarizes all of God's good gifts to us. Gospel. The good news is this. Jesus is Lord. The power of God to save sinners. The gospel and Paul says, from the first day until now, not only do you get to have Christ, you actually get to have other people who have Christ. You get one another. And Paul says, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for you that I would pray with thankfulness for you that Jesus actually gets us together. And Paul speaks about this partnership all the way through this letter. Partnership. He says in chapter 4 is financial, and he needed that, and churches need that. We need to actually partner together for the sake of the gospel. But it's also in prayer. Philippians 1 verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out my deliverance. It's so easy to say to someone, isn't it? I'll pray for you, and then forget later. It's a great culture to have among us that we'd pray in that moment then as we send that message or speak with that person, even pray with them. That we actually partner in the gospel. And and when you think of someone, and even if you do think of someone and think, I've got a bit of a, a gripe or a grumble, could you turn that grumble into a prayer? It's unbelievably powerful. Reforming Church. We thank God for you. Like we thank God for one another and our partnership in the gospel, and we need that partnership in the gospel. And not just to make budget, as if the mission of the church is to make budget. No, no, to make disciples. We need that partnership in the gospel that actually means we can continue to love the lost and reach people with the gospel. But it's more than that too, isn't it? Partnership is not just financial, it's a deep pastoral love of one another. And Paul says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this. And he writes from prison. Last few weeks, our family and many families in our church have felt, you know, well, well, COVID, it's going around, right? So I was just reflecting with um, someone just before the service started how it's been a, a kind of in a two-month period or a month and a half. Our family, we had a week of COVID, so our boys had COVID, so we were out for the Colin concert and out for church. And then we had a week on, and then there was gastro, so we're out with gastro. And we had a week on, and then we're out with another week of COVID, and it kind of feels like we just stop starting, stop starting. It feels like we're away from people all the time, away from church, away from even just going outside. That can be difficult. It can be difficult to kind of, you want to be with your church, you want to be with people. How much more for Paul who's in prison? Now, COVID can have a stigma about it. Gastro's got a stigma, right? 
You mentioned the word gastro even lightly under your breath and you watch parents with children start to go, keep eye contact, back away, God bless you. Prison has a stigma attached to it. Even today, uh, later on this term, we're going to have a visitor from the prison fellowship come and speak with us. We want to be prayerfully supporting prison ministries, those ministries where people can't get to a church, where the gospel can get to them. Key ministries, very strategic. Prison has a stigma, doesn't it? If you've been to prison, that means you've done your time for your crime. It's got a stigma. But even for Paul, who, well, in the church's eyes, would be particularly innocent of any particular crime, but it would be easy for them. And we know from this letter to the Philippians that this is how other people, other churches treated Paul. When they saw Paul in prison, they turned their backs on him because it's got a stigma, because the association is, well, if, if Paul gets in prison because of the gospel, I just won't be so public as a Christian. I'll back away a little bit because that got him in prison. I don't want to go to prison. I want a comfortable life. I thought Christianity was being about comfortable life. And Paul says that of all the churches that did not turn their back on me, you Philippians didn't. The Philippians didn't turn their back on Paul. Instead, they partnered with Paul. And Paul says in verse 7 that they were partners both not just in the proclamation of the gospel but in his imprisonment, partners in suffering. Friends, to belong to Christ's church, to belong to reforming church means we also belong to one another in our suffering. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, we all suffer. Churches that suffer together grow together. Someone else's struggle is my struggle. We are partners in the gospel together. We pray together, we partner together. You're in hospital, we're there. You need prayer, we're praying for you. You need care, you don't know what to do, we're there asking God what to do with you. Now, you may not have been in prison, but you may have been in limbo with mandates. We're praying for you. We will sit up to all hours of the night at the end of our group talking with you and asking God to help you. You may be in a situation where your ill health just will not cease to plague you. We are there with you. You may be low, you may be lonely. Even in your own family circumstances, you can be lonely. And we are there with you, with a new family for you. It's called the church. It may be when others slander you. They talk about you. When it seems that their game is to shame you, where they turn their backs on you. We will not... For we are partners with you in whatever imprisonment you find yourself in. The Philippian church was planted in testing times. Paul went into prison in the planting of this church. He's now in prison as he writes to this church. 
And friends, we are going to go through testing times as a church. And here is the question. What will hold us together? Imagine if we didn't have the grace of God. Our friendship would always be fragmented if we didn't have grace. Marriages fall apart without grace and forgiveness. Friendships fall apart. We forego friendships without grace. But by the grace of God, we have his grace to us so that we can extend grace to one another that forms fellowship. And Paul then prays thirdly, so let's pray for this more and more. Let's, let's make it our prayer in verses 9 to 11. Paul, Paul writes, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Friends, we need this prayer. We need to pray this today. What is life in this world like? Surely you've seen it. Life in this world is functionally short-sighted. Look, let's just take a few things from this year. Um, From this year, I follow the news closely, international news. Um, And to do that, I follow Twitter. So you don't just get the news, you get the commentary that goes with the news articles. And sometimes you shouldn't read the comments, but in February, when I was reading international experts, they were saying, Russia's going to go in, it'll be over in a few weeks, and Ukraine will be part of Russia as a province, and case closed. This dominant military power is going to go in. The experts say, we know the outcome. Even the experts can't predict the future. We can't predict the weather next week accurately enough, let alone to say, my life will turn out this way. We don't know that, you don't know that, I don't know that. Our life is functionally so short and so short-sighted. Life in this world is all about you, your day, your desires, your destiny, and, and the world says you get to decide on everything. And that is actually fundamentally a lie. The biggest problem with that theory of revolution is death. The biggest thing we miss is there is a thing called this day of Christ. Paul repeats throughout this letter, the day of Christ, verse 10. And the day of Christ is coming. What does that mean? It asks the question, what are we looking forward to? What are we praying about? What do you pray about? What do you, in your moments of despair, cry out to God? What are your moments of just life is okay, pray about? What do you pray, parents, with your children at night? Those who live in a household, get a housemate. What do you pray as housemates each day together? What's your daily prayer together? If you live alone, how do you rely upon God in everything in prayer? What are you asking God for? If the day of Christ is coming, could we now, imagine if we did, pray this prayer from Philippians 1? that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that God would be glorified. Like Paul started, he says he's a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ gets this. 
That if the day of Christ is coming, what is the big thing that's most important is God gets the glory, not me, not us. That he be glorified in people's lives, that people would actually enjoy him. So when people look at the church, what do they see now? When people look at the church, what should they see? I think they should see this. When people look at Reforming Church, they should see a bunch of people who have blown it. They should. They could. They can. They get to see this. When you look at Reforming Church, you see a bunch of people who have blown it, but by the grace of God, who would normally be done for, by the grace of God, are now forgiven and formed together in a family. They get to see that Jesus actually does change everything. A church is full of people who don't just get a second chance, they get, Jesus' words, a 77 second chance. A church is full of people who get grace, who get to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, not because we're righteous, but because, notice what Paul says, through Christ. And God gets the glory. People will look at the church and not say, what a great church. What a great platform. What a great personality. They should not look and say, what a great preacher or a great team. But to say, what a great God. And then perhaps even ask, could I belong there too? Because I've blown it as well. Could I belong part of this team? A team for people who are failures and yet forgiven, who get grace. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and, and this means so much for us now, that we are saved by grace and belong by grace. And in verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, because you're partakers of grace. See, this, this is interesting. The word partnership he uses in verse 3 In verse 7, it's a very similar word, partakers. It's the word partnership, but with a togetherness attached to it. That we're all receivers of grace. This is is the gospel story. Like we heard in the biggest story earlier in the kids' talk, people enjoyed relationship with God in the garden. But then we pushed back by our sin. And the opportunity for us today is, friends, stop pushing back. Don't push back on God's grace. Oh, but this, oh, but that, or this is not for me. No, no, receive it. Be partakers of it. Take and receive God's grace. The only thing we can bring as people who have blown it is the empty hands of faith to receive his grace in abundance. Ever since we sin, we can't get to him, but by his grace, he comes to us. He comes to us. And he gives us grace upon grace. If God gives us grace abundantly, what does that mean for us now? If he gives us grace abundantly, it means we, we prayerfully are dependent on him in every way. He gives abundantly, we pray dependently. We get to. 
A church is a group of people who, under the conditions of the world, would not normally get together. In fact, you know this, when the conditions of the world come into your heart and you let them reign rather than grace, you don't get together, you push away. But when grace changes us inside out, that power means the only thing that needs to leave our fellowship is the paralyzing pressure to save ourselves. That's the thing that needs to leave. The idea that we can save ourselves has got to go because we can't. And the idea that we look at each other and and withhold grace has to go. We can show grace to one another because we have received grace upon grace and that grace has a name. It's not a substance, it's a person. It's Jesus. What we embody as church is the astonishing reality that God has done something we could not do. Jesus changes relationship with us, with us and God, and with us and us. And this is a beautiful vision for the church. This means you belong here. It means for the lonely, the person who's alone, it means for those who feel full and busy in their lives, church is not just an event for us to attend, it's a family for us to love. So here's a few things I think for us we need to really reflect upon and and actually see, is Jesus changing us here? I think it would be easy for us to think, we, we got to church and so we made it. And look, friends, that can sometimes be half the battle, can't it? With COVID, gastro, whatever it is going around, it can be just a battle just to get to church. But it's not just getting here and leaving as fast as you can means we've actually done church. The word church means to gather. But loving and staying and welcoming because you get to by grace. Here's a hot tip. You can't partner with strangers. You you can't partner with strangers. It requires us to get to know people. Requires us to say hello to people, to talk with people in the room, to love them over a meal, to have them over for a meal. And this is totally a privilege. Community is a privilege where we're included. In Acts 16, we saw this in action, didn't we? This is the Philippian jailer who, after Jesus saves him, Notice what he does. We saw it in Acts 16. He washes the wounds he inflicted upon Paul and Silas. He tends the wounds that he inflicted. He becomes a partner in the gospel from that first day until now. That's what Paul says. And then this is also Lydia, who having her heart opened by the Lord, she opens her house in hospitality. She becomes a partner in the gospel from the first day until now. And this is the slave girl, where our sin, where her sin would have cast her out. Now she gets to come in by grace. This is us. This is our prayer. Let's pray it. Let's ask God. Our Father in heaven, we're asking now that we would have this kind of community among us. 
We're asking now that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that we may approve what is excellent, that we would be pure and blameless by the grace of God for the day of Christ, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that this would glorify you, that our joy would be in Jesus, our love for one another, our community grow by the power of Christ. This is our prayer. And all of us, as your people say, Amen.